to start this off with two requests. One, um, I want to encourage you guys specifically and personally and specifically. Did I say specifically twice? I think I did. Um, to encourage our two worship leaders, um, Allie and John, that for just different reasons, I think this is a hard weekend for them to serve, uh, whether it's for exhaustion or other reasons. So I just want to encourage you guys to specifically, personally go up to them and just love on them, encourage them, say thank you, okay? Um, because it's a gift to have them, and they do just such a great job in leading us. The second is a little awkward. Uh, can I get all of us to kind of scooch to the middle and then towards the front? Now let's just go ahead and do that right now. Let's kind of gather together. Let's get a little bit closer. Uh, I know some of you kind of post up in your own specific spot on purpose. Um, I just want to say, hey, if you come to church and you feel like you don't connect with people, that might be why. Um, let's go ahead and get close. And plus, it's just a little quiet in here tonight. It would be nice to feel people a little bit closer. Okay, good. Awesome. I was a little bit afraid that people weren't going to do it. That's good. Cool. Okay, what's going on? Kind of like close up. I want to see you right there. Okay, cool. So those are my two awkward requests. Um, let's go ahead and just kind of center in. And I want to ask you guys a question. Okay, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to think about your personal life. Okay, a question about your personal life. How many of you? And I'll ask you to raise your hands in a second. But how many of you have had a period of time in life at some point, or you're walking through it right now, where you've felt kind of like you're sleepwalking through life, where everything feels monotonous, like every day is the same, wash, rinse, repeat, and it feels pretty empty and void? Yeah. That's pretty much everybody. Uh, and if you haven't hit that yet, that will come at some point. That is kind of a natural human experience. Um, one, that just stinks emotionally right? You just feel kind of dead and void and life feels meaningless. But there's a spiritual aspect to it that I want to draw your attention to because I think God wants to speak to you if you're in that right now or if you find yourself in that sometime later. There's a spiritual aspect to it. It is probably the dominant tactic of our spiritual enemy to lead us into a lifetime, a lifestyle of sleepwalking through life. One of the primary ways, I'll go ahead and say it, the primary way that spiritual warfare manifests here in the States or in wealthy Western countries is by fostering and feeding spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy is the primary tactic of our spiritual enemy here in wealthy nations. And so, yeah, sleepwalking through life, that's a, that's a terrible emotional experience, but what that does to your soul is so much more dangerous because you begin to stop listening to the voice of God and you become a lot more attuned to the voices of the world around you, the spiritual enemies around you, your own flesh, corrupt desires. You begin to listen to those. You begin to take comfort in those and you walk through this sleepy existence just okay to exist and trying to get some satisfaction. Jesus wants to say to you and to me tonight, wake up. We can't sleepwalk through life. 
he wants to say to you, wake up, because there's so much better for you out there. He's going to say it through a long, crazy text tonight. Uh, We're going to be in Mark chapter 13. Um, And I'm going to have to kind of jump into this quickly. I can't review the book of Mark tonight like I typically try to do. Um, Yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and kind of explain what we're going to see in Mark chapter 13. And then I want to make some disclaimers before we jump in. Um, So what we have seen last week at the end of Mark chapter 12... Jesus kind of throws down the gauntlet with the religious authorities, and he specifically calls them out. He says, you guys are all about showy religion that is empty, void, and meaningless, and it means nothing to God, and actually judgment is coming on you and on the temple because of it. You don't love God, you don't love the people around you in your own nation, and you don't love the people outside your nation. You have not been faithful to anything that God has said. You have not trusted him. Judgment is coming unless you repent. And he did that in public before everybody. And so that scene just ended. And then this next full chapter is going to be this crazy sort of apocalyptic movie sounding explanation about things that are going to unfold in history. Okay. When I say apocalyptic, you might think of end of the world, machine guns, like crazy. I don't know, like what are those glasses called? What is steampunk stuff, you know? That's what I always think of. We're looking people, there's like, I don't know, chemical warfare. That's not what we're talking about. Um, really, what Jesus is going to focus on is events that have unfolded within history already, and then he's going to point forward at the end to something that's to come, and that we just need to be ready for. And he's going to call us, wake up. Don't sleepwalk through life. Because God has things for you right now, in the here and now, that yes are difficult that yes will involve suffering, but are part of the pathway to life. Okay, so that's Mark chapter 13. Disclaimers now. This is probably, no, this is the most disputed text in the chapter, or in the book of Mark. Uh, You can go to the commentaries and you'll read somebody's over here and you'll read somebody's over here and then over here and then who knows where. It is very disputed. There's a lot of different interpretations and frankly, it's beyond me. I am overwhelmed. Uh, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to humbly offer to you just one interpretation of this text, okay? Uh, I've done the best that I can with it. I'm going to offer my best interpretation. If you don't like it, if you've heard something different growing up, um, I just want to comfort you. This doesn't have anything to do with, like, core Christian beliefs. These are details on the side, okay? So don't freak out. Um, That's one thing. But alongside with that, The cool thing is that the practical application for this, what this means for you and for me today and tomorrow, is not affected by the craziness in this chapter. It gets real simple, real straightforward, real basic at the end. Okay, so never fear, we're going to get to clear stuff. Bear with me as we go through the crazy stuff, okay? So go ahead, pick up your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 13, Um, and actually what I want to do tonight, because... My voice tends to lull people to sleep, I've noticed. And you guys have already eaten dinner, and so you're probably pretty sleepy already. Uh, Rachel Bollinger has an awesome voice and can read really well. And so I'm going to invite her on up here to read Mark chapter 13 for us. How's that? Is that okay? Yeah. Hey, Connor, could we get this on? 
Do you know how to? Okay, cool. Thank you, Allie. Check it out. Oh, hey. Okay. All right, Mark chapter 13. Follow along with her. Yes, please follow along. It's a very long chapter. <clears throat> okay, Mark 13, 1 through 37. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, uh, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against a nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation that as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But, save for, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs, and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
so also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at, or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Thank you, ma'am. Oh, lost my mic thing. Hold on one second. Yeah, that would... That was weird. Uh, thank you, Rachel. That was great. Okay. So, um, if I could find a way to break this down kind of into chunks and then we'll walk through it, I would say it like this. Biblical prophecy has this weird thing about it. Um, and I want you to think of biblical prophets of whom Jesus is one. Yes, he is son, the Son of God, uh, made flesh, but he's also a prophet. Uh, and they have this ability to stand on a mountain peak because of what God has shown them. And they see mountain peaks off in the distance that line up in their vision. Okay? And these things are linked and united because of similar ideas, similar events through history. Okay? So, in this text, we have three mountain peaks that Jesus sees and he's going to discuss. But the weird thing about biblical prophecy is once you kind of get down onto ground level and you look at it from the side, you see that there's gaps in between the different pieces of the prophecy. So there might be one event separated from the next event by hundreds of years. And the same might be true of the next one, okay? That's the weird thing about biblical prophecy. The prophet sees it from this perspective, but as we see history unfold, it's actually this way. We're seeing it from the side view, and we see that there's actual gaps in history until all of it's fulfilled. It's a weird thing, okay? But that's partially what's going on here. So... In verses 1 through 13, what Jesus is going to focus on is just one of those mountain peaks. And he's going to encourage the disciples to steadfastness because they will suffer and they will go through difficulty as they are faithful to him. That's one mountain peak. Okay. The next mountain peak, Jesus is going to talk about God's judgment on Israel and the destruction of the temple. Okay. That's going to happen within their lifetime, but it's going to be a little bit later on. It's going to be 40 years from the point that he talks about it here. And then thirdly, Jesus is going to point forward to the very final day of God's judgment. Whenever the righteous will be saved, the wicked will be judged, God comes back and remakes all things. And that's going to be way, way off because it hasn't happened yet, right? These are the three mountain peaks. I'll do it this way. The disciples are encouraged to faithfulness as they suffer while they're serving Jesus. That's one. And then a ways after that, God is going to judge Israel because of their unfaithfulness, their rebellion against him. And he's going to do that by bringing Rome in and he's going to destroy the temple. And then thirdly, there is coming a final day 
when God will intervene, he will judge all evil in the world, defeat it, and he will make all things new and save his people. All right. So let's go ahead and take a look. I'm going to kind of point out aspects of the text as we go through. I'm not going to go ahead and read all of it because it's a lot. Uh, but it all has to hang together. So verses 1 through 13. Jesus encourages the disciples to steadfastness through the trials they will endure as they're faithful to him. Notice how Jesus kind of describes his teaching in this section. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says at the end of verse 7, These things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, so on and so forth. At the end of verse 8, these are but the beginning of birth pains. And so in the middle of 1 through 13, Jesus makes it clear. Look, I'm telling you these things, they are not the end. Don't view them as signs of everything coming to a cataclysmic end. This is just the normal way of history. That image of birth pains is actually a view of all creation being renewed and reborn. But human history leading up to that point is going to go through some difficulty. It's going to go through some trials and some turmoil. There's going to be some birth pains before new creation is birthed. Okay. So what does Jesus talk about as a lead up to that for the disciples? He says, there will be many who come in his name and they say, I am he. What does that mean? There are going to be people who say, I am the Christ. I am the anointed king. I am the one God has chosen. All Israel should follow me. Let's rebel against our oppressors. We got this. Jesus says, there's going to be a lot of people who do that. There's been a lot of people who wanted me to do that. Watch out for them, because they seek to lead many astray. And then he also says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, and then there's going to be earthquakes in various places, verse 8, and famines. All of these things are going to be happening. There's going to be calamity and turmoil all around you, in a political sense, and then also in a natural disaster sense. The world is going to feel like it's ending, but these are just the beginning of the birth pains. The end is not yet. So just a thought for us as we kind of sidestep and just talk for a second. I just think it's interesting that in conservative Christian circles, whenever we see political events going on, whenever there's natural calamities going on, one of the first tendencies that we have is saying, this is it. This is the end. You know? Uh, we, we just all have that tendency. I have done that before. You know? And especially over these past couple of years with everything going on, it has felt like a dark doom and gloom time. And I look at the world scene and I think, my God, everything's falling apart. This is about to end. And Jesus reminds his disciples, and this should be a reminder to us, these are part of the birth pains. This is part of the turmoil that is in the earth before the end. Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. Don't be led astray. Actually, be obedient to what he calls the disciples to. Take a look. Verse 9, he calls them to be on guard. And be ready for several things. They're going to be delivered over to councils. They're going to be beaten in the synagogues. And they're going to be set before governors and kings. Why? For Jesus' sake, in order to bear witness before those rulers. And then he says, the gospel must be first proclaimed to all nations. So Jesus goes from chaos around the disciples. There's going to be political strife. There's going to be wars and famine and earthquakes. And then he steps in and he says, but for you personally... There's going to be difficulty. So don't, surpri- don't be surprised whenever you follow me 
and your people reject you. Don't be surprised whenever they not only reject you, but they beat you in the place of the worship of God. Don't be surprised whenever you are arrested and then handed over to Gentile rulers. Don't be surprised and don't be worried. Why is that happening? It's to fulfill my purposes. It's to give you an audience to share the good news that God's kingdom, his reign, his restorative reign is coming to the earth. That's why I'm doing this. This is going to play out in your lives. Don't be alarmed. Don't be upset. Don't feel like God has failed you or forsaken you. This is part of what you're called to. There's going to be strife around you. There will be suffering in your life. But don't be alarmed. Don't feel like this isn't my plan for you. And then he talks about strife within families. He says, brother will rise against brother, father against child, so on and so forth. This is a very, very clear depiction of what happens within the Jewish community whenever the gospel actually takes root and some Jews come to faith. Because what they're doing is they're saying, hey guys, uh, God sent his son and he was our king and we crucified him. So we need to repent and follow him because he raised from the dead and God has seated him at his right hand to rule over us. Like, that's a divisive claim. Everything that you know, basically, you need to reinterpret it, is what the disciples would be saying and Christians would be saying to their fellow Jews in that day. That meant that families broke apart. That meant that communities broke apart. Like the strife that we feel sometimes because of our faithfulness to Jesus, magnify that by 10 times for Jews who came to faith early on. And Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't be discouraged. Don't be turned aside because of that. This is part of God's plan. This is bound to happen. These are the things that are necessary to happen. Verse 13, he even takes it broader than just the community of the Jews. He says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. It, in the first century, we have some graffiti of a man worshiping. And what he's worshiping is a figure on the cross with the head of an ass. That is against Christians. Like the claim there is you worship an ass, a crucified ass. That, ha that is how Christians were viewed in the first century. Trash, idiots, stupid, subversive. That is what they were walking into. And yet in the midst of all that, the love of God has not been lost. In the midst of all that, the plan of God has not been forgotten or fallen apart. God remains faithful, and it is through the loving suffering of his people that he rescues people out of darkness, that he melts rebellious human hearts, that he reaches out and calls enemies friends. That's a hard call for the disciples, though. And Jesus knows that, and so what does he do? He encourages them. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is a call to endurance for the disciples. Their original question is, okay, hey, you told us this temple is going to be destroyed. Tell us about that. When's that going to happen? What are the signs that it's going to occur? And Jesus says, okay, well, first I want to tell you what's going to happen in your lifetime. There's going to be craziness and chaos going on around you, and there's going to be suffering that you go through because of your devotion to me. Don't be 
turn aside. Don't lose heart. Endure to the end because God sees you and he will deliver you. He will save you. He is for you. So that's the first mountaintop. Jesus speaks to the disciples about being faithful in the time that they have. The suffering that they will endure and encourages them to press forward to the end. This next section, though, he's actually going to move to talking about the temple, which raised the whole question. Jesus says back in verse 2, Do you see these great buildings in the temple? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then a few disciples come up and they say, Hey, tell us when these things will be, verse 4. Now Jesus actually begins to answer that question. He's going to talk about how God's judgment comes on Israel and the temple is destroyed. Uh, but it's going to take a little bit of explanation to get through that. Okay, so take a look at verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, pay attention here. This is a highlight, underlined, emphasized part. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Abomination of desolation. That's a phrase that's pulled from Daniel. It's used three different times in that book. Daniel is an Old Testament prophetic book that really looked way far forward and talked about the unfolding of the rest of human history in a lot of ways. And the abomination of desolation talks about as a reference to something going on within the Jewish temple that absolutely desecrates it. It's a shameful defiling thing that happens there. Whenever Daniel first talked about it, he was pointing forward to a historical event that was fulfilled in 167 by a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. That's a hard name to say. And what that guy did, he was, uh, gosh, I forget what he was, what culture he was. Kyle? Seleucid. Which I don't even know really what that is, but Okay, descended from Alexander the Great. Okay, perfect. So this is way back in history. What he does, he comes into the Jewish temple when they, they conquer the Jewish people, and he actually sacrifices a pig, the most unclean animal according to Jewish faith, on the altar, and he dedicates it to Zeus. So this is the abomination of desolation that Daniel pointed forward to. When Jesus references this, he's saying, hey, you remember that time? Antiochus Epiphanes from the Seleucids? <laughs> What he did in the temple, there's going to be something similar that happens again. Something similar is going to happen in the temple again. And when you see that, everybody in Judea, everybody in southern Israel, man, take to the hills. Run for cover. He says, don't wait. Don't try to run into your house and try to grab stuff. Don't run in from your fields after you're working and try to grab stuff. Just go. Because that will be the sign that bad stuff is about to happen around you. That's when God's judgment comes upon Israel. Um, exactly what that is pointing to in history, there's a number of different possibilities. Uh, I don't know what it is. <laughs> uh, there's a guy named Josephus. He's a Jewish historian who lived in Rome. He has some information about what happens uh, in the time period from A.D. 66 to 70, where the Romans came in. There was a war between the Rome and Israel. And it was just a terrible time. And there's a number of things that happened in the temple that we could call the abomination of desolation. I don't know what it is, though. Yeah. Uh, but what Jesus says, when you see that happen, let everybody run. Uh, take cover, fly to the hills, pray to God that it won't happen in winter so you can have safe travel. And then he says, 
for in those days, in that time, there will be worse tribulation, worse suffering than has been known from the creation and going forward. That's a typical Jewish way of saying things will be really bad. Like really, really bad. The prophets use that kind of language over and over. It's emphatic. It's a little bit exaggerated. But this was a bad time. Josephus describes it, and it was a total sweep from the north to the south of Rome, who was a killing expert machine just tearing apart this small little country. And then it ended in the south at the temple where the city was conquered, the people were subdued. Jesus says, God is merciful. He cut short that time. It was only uh, the, the time in the south where the temple was kind of being attacked and the whole city was under siege. That was short out of God's love for his people, out of his, his love for the elect. And Jesus says, in that time, there are going to be people who say, look, there's the Christ, or hey, I'm the Christ. He says, don't believe it. And we do have many historical examples of people at that point saying, hey, all those guys you heard about before, they were not the real deal. But here I am, I am, so let's go ahead and run and destroy these Romans. And time after time, between 66 and 70, they were crushed and squashed and massacred and crucified. Jesus says, don't let yourself be distracted, drawn astray by those people. Don't let your friends who believe in me be drawn astray. These things are what's going to unfold. He says, be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. Then he's going to move and he's going to specifically talk about the destruction of the temple. And this is probably where it gets a little bit hard for us to understand because he uses cosmic imagery. He says, the sun will be dark, and this is in verse 24. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in heavens will be shaken. That seems like the meltdown of the universe as we know it, right? And many of you might have grown up thinking that's what those texts are referring to. That's one possible interpretation. I'm not going to, like, rail against it. But if we look at similar language from the Old Testament, it's used over and over for God's judgment on worldly authorities and powers. It, over and over, he says, hey, I'm coming for you, you corrupt nation. The sun's going to be darkened. The moon is going to not give us light. The stars will fall from heaven. Your doom will come. This is what the prophets say over and over. The irony is, in the Old Testament, this was towards other pagan nations. And now Jesus is speaking it here of the nation of Israel. They used to rejoice as their enemies were crushed by the hand of God, all the while thinking that the same wouldn't come to them. And yet Jesus is saying, guys, time is coming. Judgment is coming. Whenever the sun doesn't give its light, whenever it's moon, the moon goes dark, whenever the stars fall from heaven, God will judge and crush the existing power authorities here in Israel. Most specifically, he will crush and destroy the temple. And God will begin a new chapter in his work that he's always planned. What will that chapter look like? Take a look. 25. I'm sorry, 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory and power. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. The Son of Man terminology is referring back to Daniel 7. This is a man who is presented before God. God 
seats him at his right hand, enthrones him over the kingdom at the end of all things, and all people worship and serve the Son of Man. Jesus says, you will know whenever I have been vindicated as the Son of Man, whenever I am seated in my authority in heaven, whenever God brings his judgment on the authorities who've rejected me. I'm the Son who's been sent. I have reached down in love. I have proclaimed that God's reign is here, and people have given God the finger, and they want to kill me. And they will. They will kill me. But God's judgment will come on them. And you'll know that I am seated in power and authority whenever the, ju- whenever the t- temple is crushed and whenever the people of God begin to expand. The boundaries are open, the doors are flung wide, and people from all nations are gathered into the people of God. You don't have to become a Jew to trust in Jesus and be a part of the people of God. That's what he's talking about with the elect being gathered from the four corners of the earth. And then he uses this little parable of a fig tree to say, okay, so I've told you what's going to happen in your life. That was one mountaintop. Then I've told you what's going to happen with the temple and judgment on Israel. That was the second mountaintop. These are the things you need to be looking for, and I want you to pay attention. And so that's the whole reason in 28 through 31 he uses that image of the fig tree. He says, in the same way that the fig tree puts out its leaf, you know that summer's around the corner. So whenever these things begin to unfold, whenever that craziness happens in the temple, whenever you see great tribulation and suffering in the land of Israel, whenever the temple itself is destroyed, then you know that God's plan, his judgment has unfolded here. So be attentive, watch for it. So that's those. That's two mountaintops that we talked about so far. But there's a third one, and it's the final one. And I actually want to read this together, because this is really where the heart of our our time together comes out of, verses 32 through 37. Jesus opens it saying, but, he's changing subject, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. So this is a specific day, and it's at an unknown time. When the New Testament uses that day, it's almost always referring to the final day whenever God judges the wicked and rescues the righteous, whenever he defeats evil and renews all things. That day. He says it happens at an unknown time. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son know, but only the Father. The king who's going to come back doesn't even know. It's the Father who knows. It's just so ironic that with this kind of text, so many people want to make timelines. They want to make date predictions. They want to tell you, hey, the end's coming tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, 2050. That's not what Jesus is instructing here. He's saying, I don't even know. But he does give instruction for us. 33, be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come, so don't guess. It's like a man going out on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, like the doorkeeper, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, disciples, I say to all, I say to all 
who read the book of Mark, who hear my words, stay awake. Jesus points forward to that final day when God judges and God saves and God rescues his creation that he made. He says, that's going to happen at a time that nobody knows. Even I don't know. So don't get caught up worrying about the time. But you need to stay awake. You need to be attentive. You need to be wary. And so as we step back and we can kind of consider, I know that a lot of the stuff that I've said feels like dusty, dry, old, irrelevant history. Um, I get that. For those among us who have struggled with, is Jesus really who he said he was? Is Christianity genuinely, historically defensible? I just want to say to you guys, this is an encouragement. This was written early on in the first century, and it predicted things that unfolded after it. I think Jesus is shown to be a true prophet of God here. And so if you're struggling with, can I really believe this? Is this intellectually defensible? Like, this is a big deal. The rest of us, kind of boring. I, I, I get it. But at the end, the voice of Jesus speaks to you and to me very practically and very personally. And he says, this life is not something to sleepwalk through. Wake up and walk faithfully with God. Wake up and walk faithfully with God. So I want to talk about some things that lull us to sleep in this life that kind of draw us away from faithfulness. And I want to talk about ways that we can wake up. Okay? The first thing that can lull us to sleep is just spiritual evil at work in the world. Um, when, when I talk about spiritual evil, I'm really talking about three things. There is the flesh that is the broken part of us that still rebels against God. It's inherent to who we are, even as Christians. It is spiritual forces of evil, Satan and the demonic, that we can't see most of the time, uh, but are actively at work around us. And then three, the corrupt world system that we live in, all layers of human society. All of these three come together to rebel against God and to lead us astray. These three forces, the flesh, the world, the demonic, I think are actively at work, like I said, here primarily to lull you into spiritual apathy. And one of the ways that it, they seek to do that here is honestly by exalting personal comfort and glorifying it in a way that appeals to us, in a way that makes sense on a daily basis, in a way that feels responsible for us to embrace, pursue, that sort of thing. The goal of spiritual evil is to steal, kill, and destroy. It's pretty explicit. Jesus says it in John 10. But the enemy goes about that in a way that's subtle here. Yes, he wants to destroy you. Yes, he wants to wreck your life. But he's going to make it sweet while he does it. He's going to lure you and tempt you. And it's going to lull you to sleep as you pursue the things that are comfortable, as you pursue the things that are nice, as you seek to engage in the things that are glorified by our culture the things that appeal to your lusts. This is lulling you away from faithfulness to God. I'm not saying that money's inherently evil. I'm not saying that having a nice job or home or any of those things are inherently bad. 
I'm not saying that a great steak and a good glass of wine is a bad thing. All those things are good gifts from God, but when they get exalted, when they get glorified and deified, when your whole life becomes centered around pursuing those things and then making life decisions on the basis of can I get more, that's you and I getting lulled away from faithfulness to God. He's no longer Lord over your life if you're dictated and directed by those things. And so I just want to call your attention to the fact that spiritual evils at work around you, you don't have to have eyes that are glowing and a head that's spinning and be like spewing projectile vomit and crawling all over the ceilings and the walls to be affected by spiritual evil. You can unthinkingly engage in American culture and be twisted and pulled away from God's plan for you. You can unthinkingly just kind of float through and enjoy American culture and be twisted away from what God wants for you. Be influenced and formed and shaped by spiritual evil. So, in terms of waking up, what do we do? Guys, I think just the simple basic thing is to just be wary of that. These, three, these things exist. The flesh, the world, the demonic. There are corrupt tendencies and lusts within you. Even as a Christian, that will persist. And you need to know that that's there. It's your default position if you're not careful. Don't be surprised whenever you look at pornography. Don't be surprised whenever you're tempted to make life decisions on the basis of getting more money. Don't be surprised whenever you act in a selfish way and you refuse to serve others. That's kind of the fundamental posture of humanity. It's wrapped up in all of us. What you need to do is you need to be wary. This is in me. And I live in a corrupt society that's going to fuel that. It's going to feed that. And I live with spiritual forces around me that are going to entice me and try to lead me astray. And they do it in subtle ways. So just be wary. The Bible calls us to be mindful that these things are going on. But in the midst of all that, while we are wary, we don't worry. Even though you're wary about these things, you don't have to worry. Jesus has defeated each one of these things. Whenever he laid down his life, whenever he was exalted on the cross, this wasn't just a moment of shame and humiliation. It was the victory of the king over the flesh, over the world, over the demonic. He crushed it by giving himself. He defeated it in love for us. We don't have to cower. We don't have to worry about these forces of evil. We do need to be wary. Okay. On top of the victory of Christ, the Spirit of God has been given to you. For those of you who have trusted in Jesus, he will protect you and guide you and empower you to walk faithfully. You will screw up. You will mess up. You will sin against God. I promise you. I still do daily. But God is merciful. And his spirit changes us and transforms us even at the level of desires. Be wary. You don't have to worry, though. This is the second thing that lulls us to sleep. Um, I kind of alluded to it already, but I want to develop it more. I call it the lazy river of middle-class American life. Um, how many of you have been in the lazy river somewhere? A lazy river? For those of you who haven't had the glorious experience of a lazy river, it's typically found at a water park. And what you do is you just kind of plop yourself in the stream, which sounds really weird. It sounds like toilet imagery, sorry. Um, 
You just kind of float along. You don't have to like paddle or do anything. You just float through the lazy river. The stream, the current just carries you along. And I really think that the middle class American life is very much like a lazy river. And it's, it's unfolding for you guys right now. You're here in college, which is a gift and a privilege. And I know that many of you, like, don't come from rich families. I know that you're not rolling in the dough. You're here because you have scholarships or loans or different things like that. But the fact that you have an education is a big deal. It gives you a privileged position in our society. And then beyond that, it'll lead to a job. And then naturally beyond that, you're going to think about getting married and then having kids and then doing all the kids' activities and raising them. And then they're going to move out, and then you're going to go into empty nesting stage, and you're just kind of floating along. And then eventually you might hit retirement, and you're going to hope it goes back around, but it kind of ends there. So it's a one-way lazy river. Um, but here, here's the point. One life stage leads easily onto the next. Okay? Like, you, you'll, you'll feel weird right now because many of you are thinking, oh, what's the next stage? I have to make all these decisions. Guys, you might feel like that right now, but life just kind of carries you along if you're not careful. It will just take you away in its sweep and in its stream, and you can unconsciously float through it. You can float through it without asking God, what do you want for me? What does my future need to look like in your eyes? How can I fulfill your will? Like, those questions aren't going to be signposts along the lazy river. You just kind of float on through. And if you're not careful, you'll just unconsciously float on through. And it will lead you to a lifestyle that glorifies your own personal comfort and caring for the comfort of those closest to, to you. This is part of that spiritual apathy I'm talking about. This is how so many Americans go through their daily life and feel like, I have freaking done this so many times. And whenever I eat a delicious steak, it doesn't taste good anymore. And whenever I have a good glass of wine, I want another because it doesn't satisfy me. And even though I have a beautiful wife and I sleep with her, I'm always looking at other women and thinking about them. Because it, it doesn't satisfy. This is the lazy river of middle, li middle class American life. And it will lull you to sleep. And so what do we do to wake up? Guys, it's pretty simple. Just make a discipline of submitting your future to God in prayer. There are some of you who have the next 10 years planned out, right? You're like super detailed. It's like color-coded. You got a chart out, calendar. It's like down. You got your plan. And there are others of you who are more free-spirited and you just want to kind of float. But the thing that's common to many of us is that we haven't just actively said, hey, God, here's kind of my desires, but what do you want for me? Here's what I want to study. Here's what I want to work in. Here's the things that I want to be involved in. But how do you want that to factor into your plan? How can I spread your love? How can I be one who represents you? Whether I'm a teacher or an artist or a businessman or woman. So hear me clearly. I'm not saying, hey, go quit your major and go to seminary and become a pastor or a missionary. Please, 
Like, unless God is leading you that way, please don't do it. We have already have enough disgruntled people, I think, in the ministry. Um, um, we need faithful businessmen and women. We need godly artists and authors. We need active nonprofit makers who love Jesus and spread the light of the gospel in our society. God doesn't necessarily rip away your plans and your desires if you say, hey, what do you want me to do? He might, because you might want it for the wrong reason. But God can just as easily take your plans and say, hey, I'm going to make some tweaks, but here's what I want for you, and here's how I want to use you. Guys, I can promise you, if you actively submit yourself and you pray to God, what do you want from me? God will guide you. God will lead you. And I can say also along with that, it will involve suffering. It will involve difficulty. That is the way that Jesus walked. That is the way that all disciples of Jesus walked. But it's a pathway to life. I just want to use an image and I'm going to move on to the last thing. In the Garden of Eden, God made many trees. But there were two that stood out before Adam and Eve. There was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that led to death. From Adam and Eve forward, there have been two simple, basic options before every human being. Will you choose the path of life? Will you choose the path of the death of your own making? Will you choose the path of life? Or will you choose the path of death? of your own making. That's before us all. God will lead you in the path of life if you ask him, how do you want me to go? Guide me. Then finally, okay, last thing that lulls us to sleep. Call this the deafening, dull roar of media. It is nonstop, it is constant, and it affects all of us. Unless you're living off the grid, which you're in college, and I highly doubt that. Um, so, first thing I want to talk about with media is just entertainment in general. I'm talking about video games, music, movies, that sort of thing. Um, how many of you are with me? You sort of feel like binge-watching is like an accomplishment. Like, just be honest. I'm right there. Right, okay. There's others of you, but you're like kind of timid. It's okay. Um, it's a weird, weird thing. I have literally like 200-something things in my Netflix queue, and that's not even counting the 150-something in my Amazon queue. And I feel like a sense of accomplishment whenever I've finished a show, you know. Ninth season of Friends or whatever, you know. Um, we can get lulled into just kind of deafening ourselves and numbing ourselves with entertainment. It's like this black hole that just opens up and swallows us if we let it. And if we're honest, it feels good. That's why we continue to do it. Right? Watching TV is not a bad thing. Like, there are sweet nights with my wife whenever we just sit down and we watch a documentary, we learn something. Sometimes it's nice to just see a good story. You know, sometimes it's nice just to rest. That's a good thing. That's not bad in and of itself. But when it becomes a consuming thing, when it begins to overwhelm your time, whenever it becomes a black hole for your affections and your attention, it will numb your sensitivity to God's purpose for you. 
Like whatever it is about that sense of accomplishment with getting through all these different things and being culturally up and knowing how this show kind of unfolds, it's this weird, seductive thing that leads us away from being faithful to what God has called us to on a daily basis. Like we all participate in that in, that in a daily basis, and I just want to draw our attention to it. And I want you to think about it this way. At the end of your life, let's say, God willing, we all live about 80 years in here, okay? So think of your 80-year-old self, and you kind of are walking across the finish line, and then you're met by two groups of people, okay? One group of people has been assigned to watch you all the days of your life. Pretty creepy. Uh, Truman Show-esque. And uh, their goal has been to tally and keep track of all the time that you've spent watching TV, movies, playing video games, whatever. You know, engaging in entertainment. So all the minutes, all the hours, all the days, all the months, all the years, out of your 80-year lifespan, they've tallied that all. Okay, so that's, that's this group over here. And then another group has actively watched your life, and they have tallied the time that you have generally spent seeking God and doing His will. And that's the super broad category. So I'm talking about everything from reading the Bible to just interacting with God by praying, engaging in Christian community, serving other people, sharing the gospel, those sorts of things. Very broad. And they have tallied all the time that you've spent doing those things. What would those numbers look like side by side at the end of 80 years? How empty would it feel if this side so outweighed the other? Right? And then in eternity, will you think, dang it, I missed House of Cards. <sighs> Can we go back? Can we rewind a little bit? I want to watch that one. Like, think in realm of that. There's a good future coming where there's so much more important things will be actually weighted as they should be. Start to live that way now. How do we do that? How do we wake up and kind of set that, set, set that aside? Simply put, listen to and obey the voice of God. That's a two-step thing. Listen to and obey the voice of God. So when I talk about the voice of God, there's typically three avenues that are described that God has given to us to build us up, to encourage us, to lead us. That is the scriptures. So this book right here that he has breathed out by his spirit, he's given that to us to speak to us and to communicate with us. Okay, so that's one. Two is his actual spirit that he has sealed on our hearts when we trusted in Jesus. So when we pray, the spirit of God is at work molding and shaping us, teaching and guiding us. And then three is the community of the people of God. Christian community, God works in and through the people of God to instruct you, to teach you, to encourage you. So again, that's the Word, the Spirit, and the people of God. These are the ways that God communicates with us. These are the ways that He leads us. He will communicate with you through all three. There is a difference, though, between just merely hearing and then hearing and doing. Unfortunately, in the English language, there's a distinction. <laughs> but in Hebrew, there's no distinction. So whenever the psalmist or I'm sorry, the proverb writer says, listen, hear, O son, to wisdom and, 
and follow in it. He's actually saying, not just listen, but actually listen and do. Listen obediently. God is merciful and gracious with our failures. He does not just wring his hands in frustration at our failures or our shortcomings. But he actively wants to lead you into life. Part of that, a significant part of that, is learning just to listen to him and do what he says. All humanity has before them a path of life or death. In our culture, often the pathway to death is one of spiritual apathy, of just glorifying in comfort and falling asleep to the things of God. And Jesus is saying, there's so much better for you. Wake up and walk faithfully with God. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are the one who could actually say this with all authority. The only reason I can say any of these things uh, is because you correct and you rebuke me. You are gracious with me. You are growing me. And the same is true for all the men and women here in this room. And so I ask, Lord, that in your name and by your spirit that you would work with each person here according to their needs. There are some who feel offended by some of this. There are some who feel frustrated and intruded upon, and I pray, Lord, that you would just comfort them. I pray that you would remind them that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. That it's a gift to have you take our shoulders and gently shake us and say, wake up. Wake up. I'm calling you to life and peace and joy. And I will sustain you through the difficulty. Spirit of God, I pray that you would encourage those even as they're in the midst of conviction. But I also pray for my other brothers and sisters who just have sensitive consciences. Who are prone to feel like you are angry and disappointed and that they are never good enough. And I pray that the enemy would not take the words of God that are meant for our good and use them to discourage and be down. Lord, would you build up the weak and the broken, the frustrated and the lost? Would you draw them to yourself and teach them that it is by your gentleness, your mercy, your kindness, your love that you lead us to life? Lord, we love you. We need you constantly to shake us awake. Please help us and help us to help each other. We ask it in your name, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen.